2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to be, and we're going to cover the first 10 verses this morning of this 12th chapter. Uh, thank you, by the way, to Jeff Marlowe, who filled in for me uh, last week. He taught through the last half of chapter 11, did a fantastic uh, job, and so thankful to get to jump back into the text. But as we make our way to 2 Corinthians 12, remember that Paul is writing this letter uh, to this church in Corinth that he knew very well, a church that he planted uh, years prior, and he'd spent 18 months there uh, with the church in Corinth. And as he had spent all this time there, we get in his first letter just how he felt about these Corinthians. In fact, in uh, his first letter in chapter 4, verse 15, he says to them, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many teachers. For in Christ I have begotten you through the gospel. So as Paul thought about these Corinthians, he thought of them as his children. These were those that he had saw, he had led to Christ, he'd seen them uh, grow up and mature in Jesus. So this being said, when he gets word that there are struggles inside the church. It wasn't just Paul frustrated at a bunch of church members that are acting out. This is Paul getting word about his own children. You can imagine the kind of pain that he had. And so he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians largely to correct issues that had come up inside the church. And there were some that received Paul's word and they looked to correct things in their life. And yet there was this whole other group that were listening to other teachers that had infiltrated the church that said, Paul is full of hooey. He's a bunch of hot air. You don't need to listen to this guy. And so as a result, they questioned Paul's character. They questioned his motives. They even questioned his stature. They said, oh, Paul, he's just a little guy. You know, you can't listen to the apostle Paul because he's too little to even listen to. So they questioned all this in Paul and in his life. They questioned his resume, which is why in chapter 11, he wants to say, look, if these guys show up at your church as these super apostles, is what he mentions in the previous chapter, uh, and they want to bring their hefty resumes, I'll give you a resume to consider. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths uh, often. For from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A day and a night at the sea. Skipping down, he says, in uh, perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils at sea, in perils among brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst and fastings and cold and in nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So as Paul lists out his resume of all the times he was beaten for the sake of the gospel, beaten for the sake of these churches, note with me what he says there in verse 28. Besides all this other stuff, what really keeps me up at night, what is the hardest for me, is that the struggles you're having. Like a parent waiting up for your kids. What does that feel like? You know, not knowing if they're going to come home, not knowing where they're at. This is how Paul feels about these Corinthians, that kind of deep concern. And really, the beatings are almost easier for him to take than the worry that he has for the church and those people that he loves so very, very much. And so as these false teachers now come in, they're boasting and bragging, and what they want to do is they want to run Paul down the road, but what they're really trying to do is discredit the message. Realize this, that what Satan wants to do is discredit the message, but he knows he can't discredit that, so what he reverts to is discrediting the messenger. He, if he cannot discredit the message, which he cannot, then he's going to revert to discrediting the one who provides the message. And so this is what Paul's up against with these false teachers coming to Corinth. And this is where we arrive in 
chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And so there are these teachers that have come in, and they've got a special teaching, a secret revelation that you can know if you're a true follower of Christ. The deep teaching that not everyone can get, but they want to provide this. Or they've got great visions and prophecies that only you could understand. And Paul is saying, what a bunch of hogwash. But if they want to provide a vision, if they want to give you some kind of special teaching, how about this? How about I give you a vision? I'll give you a vision that God has allowed me to receive. He continues in verse 2 by saying, I know a man. Now Paul knew a man because here he's speaking in the third person. He is the man. He is the man, and yet as humble as he can be, he's not wanting to state that he's the man, but he's getting ready to share a vision from his own personal experience. He continues by saying, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one who was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. And so Paul is sharing now of an experience that he had 14 years prior. So if we back up in our scriptures to Acts chapter 14, in this spot, Paul and Barnabas are going through Asia Minor on their first missionary journey. And as Paul and Barnabas come through the city of Iconium and then eventually wind up in Lystra, Paul notices a man who's been crippled from birth. And as he sees this man, the Lord lays it on his heart that this guy's got enough faith to be healed. And he calls out for the man to rise and walk. And you can imagine the kind of response when a man that they knew was a cripple from birth is now walking around Lystra. But instead of giving praise to God, they give praise to Paul and Barnabas and try to make them gods. They think Paul is Zeus and Barnabas is Hermes. And so they begin to try to promote them as gods. But the thing it does is it allows Paul a chance to share the gospel. He gets the chance to share the gospel message with them through this miracle, which is always the point of a miracle. Miracles never save. It's the gospel that saves. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that actually provides salvation. And so Paul has this chance now to share salvation with them. And if you go with me to verse 19, here's the result. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. There's your encouragement from Woodlawn Chapel this morning. If you share the gospel, you might be stoned to death. Aren't you guys glad you came? Right? Oh, where's Jeff Marlowe? We want the other guy back. He doesn't talk about being stoned to death. Hey, just you wait. He'll probably come back sometime soon. But all that to say, you've got Paul sharing the gospel message, and look at how quickly people turn. It's amazing how much folks love the charisma and love the show, but then when you give them the truth of the gospel, how quickly you may get turned upon. This is the lesson we get from this particular Message. So Paul is now sharing about an experience 14 years prior where he's stoned to death, drug outside the city. And what he says is uh, how he was caught up into paradise. And so Paul, supposing himself to be dead, was caught up into paradise or into what he calls the third heaven. Now this raises the question, what is the third heaven? 
Well, our scriptures talk about three different heavens, the first of which is the atmosphere. This is the sky we see, mostly nitrogen, just about 22-ish percent oxygen, perfect for us to breathe, but it's what we can see with our eyes, here with our ears. This is the arena that we live in, and so this is the first heaven. Now, the second heaven, scripture mentions, these are the heavens up in the skies where the stars and the planets are placed. God says these are given to us for signs and seasons, and these are out there in this extraterrestrial, and yet we can still see them with our naked eye. Now then, you have the third heaven. This is where the supernatural exists. This is where God actually dwells. And this is the heaven that Paul is referring to, but it goes beyond what our eyes can see. So as Paul breathed his last seeming breath there in Lystra, he was caught up. The idea is immediately. In fact, the word in the Greek is the word harpazo. It means to be snatched up quickly, to be delivered with immediacy. Now, if you've ever been in church as a kid growing up, you might have heard this, uh, the word rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. Nowhere in the New Testament is the word rapture mentioned. That's actually true. Uh, Because in the Greek, the word is harpazo, which then translated years later into the Latin Vulgate was translated rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture. So when somebody wants to say that, you can go, there's lots of Greek words that aren't in our English language, uh, but they're actually there in the text. You just have to dig a little bit. And so the idea, and the reason I wanted to pause there is, uh, this totally debunks the idea of soul sleep that the Jehovah's Witnesses want to promote. This idea that our souls are taken to some purgatory holding area where we await final judgment, when what Paul says is, in his own experience, he was caught up, he was raptured, he was taken immediately. In chapter 5 of uh, verse 8, in his second letter that we just read, He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's an immediate rapture that takes place when we draw our last breath and we're there before the Lord. And now we got to be excited and go, okay, Paul, tell us what you saw. You've got to write a book. You've got to go on tour. Tell everybody about your experience. This is what Paul says in verse 4. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul's response was, it is illegal for me to even mention this. That the things that Paul experienced, what he heard, what he saw, it it is unlawful for him to even make mention about it. So amazing. Which always causes me to question anyone who says they've gone to heaven and they go out on a book tour. Because here's the Apostle Paul, and he's not got any shortage of words, by the way. He wrote half of the New Testament. The dude had some words. And yet, he says, there are no words to describe what I experienced. There's no words to describe what I saw. But what he does, and what we can witness, is his actions. We can see how Paul reacted after experiencing heaven. I'll go back to Acts chapter 14 and verse 20. Now you can imagine the scene. Paul, the leader of this group, has just been stoned to death. He's been drugged outside of the city. The apostles are all standing around and they're like, now what? we got the our leader's dead body here. What do we do now? And verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. So Paul sits up, previously dead. All of a sudden he does the, <gasps> takes a deep breath and like, oh no, what are we going to do now? And this is Paul's reaction. And he went into the city. Paul has just been delivered to heaven after being stoned to death. He sits up. And he goes back to doing what God 
told him to do in Acts chapter 9, which is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Even death couldn't stop the Energizer Bunny Apostle Paul. So we see his reaction. And while we want to know so badly, what did you see? What we really need to ask is, why would Paul do this? Why would he pop right up and go right back to the place where they tried to kill him? And there's two things that I want to make mention of. Uh, First of all, Paul has to know that the absolute worst thing that could happen to him is that they stone him to death again, right? I mean, the worst thing that happens is they're going to kill you, and he just saw where he went when he died. He's like, well, that wasn't so bad. i got to be present with the Lord. So the worst thing they do is they kill me again. Secondly, and this is the part that I want to hone in on, is that as Paul has experienced this, what he wants is for nobody else to miss this. As he thinks about his experience, what he just got to witness in heaven, even if they kill him, even if they try to stone him again, he doesn't want people to miss the opportunity to be with Jesus. As I reflect on that, I wonder how often I would feel that way after just being stoned. But what, when you see the heart of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, in reference to his own brethren, the Jews, he said he would rather to be accursed than for his Jewish brethren to not know Jesus. And I love people. I love many of you. I love all of you, in fact. But I don't know if I'm willing to be accursed so that you can know Jesus. I don't know that I love like that. I'm encouraged by how Paul loved people, that he was willing to go back to the city because he didn't want these people who he loved to miss out on heaven. Now, if we continue... Verse 5, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Maybe you can hear the tension in the voice of the Apostle Paul. That here he's had this experience 14 years prior. And yet he has not spoken of it since. He at least has not written of it since. This is the first time after a decade and a half. Now, if this is me, I'm probably telling everybody about the experience I had while I was in heaven. I'm talking to people about it left and right. I'm writing it down. And yet Paul was so very humbled. And the reason for that I want to share with you here at the end of verse 6, I think gives us a clue. He says, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be, or hears from me. Paul doesn't want his testimony to be one that's just a great story that he can share, but it doesn't line up with what's in Paul's life. You see, what if Paul has this great vision that he wants to share with everybody and talk on his book tour about, but he's a colossal jerk to be around? He's a real, I mean, he's a real piece of handiwork. Nobody would want to be around him if that was the case. It wouldn't line up. He'd be labeled a hypocrite. This is the idea. And so what Paul realized about his own life is that he could look back to that guy in Acts chapter 8 who submitted that Stephen needed to die there before the Sanhedrin. And he could see all that he'd been forgiven. He could look back at his life and realize all that God had forgiven him from And it didn't take a minute but to realize how much he needed to be willing to forgive. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus was 
at a Pharisee's house getting ready to eat dinner. But prior to eating, there was a woman. We're only told that she was a, a sinful woman. No doubt she was likely a prostitute. She comes before Jesus and she begins to, to anoint His feet and she cries great tears over His feet and wipes His feet with her hair. And while they're sitting there at dinner, this is what He reflects upon in verse 44. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. See, Paul could love big because he realized how much he had been forgiven. His life was one that reflected a person who had been forgiven much. So if we're struggling in the arena of forgiveness, or if we're struggling in the arena of loving people, maybe we need to go back and reset and say, how much exactly has the king of the universe forgiven me of? Think back to your life prior to Jesus. Think back to what he pulled you out of, or maybe what he's pulling you out of. And as we do that, there's a humility that comes about to realize I have been forgiven much, therefore I need to be willing to forgive much. I have been loved much by the Father, therefore I need to love much. And in doing so, you'll find a humility that takes place. And this is what is happening here. In the Brock Ashley version, the way this reads is, the greatest testimony I ever heard was the one I saw. The greatest testimony we ever hear is the one we see play out in someone's life. And so Paul wants them to know how much he loves these people as he lives with them and they do life together. Now, verse 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So as Paul thought about his career as the great Apostle Paul, he's seen all kinds of healings. He's had three years with Jesus in the deserts of Arabia where revelations are given to him. And it would be really easy for a person in that spot to get a big head, to get inflated a little bit like, I, I am the Apostle Paul. I am an Avenger, right? We get this idea where we get inflated just a little bit. And, and what God allows in his life to buffet him, to keep him uh, held back is not only just a, a, a little thorn in the flesh, but the word in the Greek, it's actually a tent stake. An 18-inch long spike driven into the flesh. Now, there's been lots of people that have projected what is the thorn that Paul has in the flesh. There's many that think he had malaria or he had an eye disease or perhaps he had all the beatings listed out in chapter 11, and his body just didn't go anymore. Whatever it is, I think is a moot point. It was allowed by God to keep Paul humble. And there are things in our lives where God allows and He does not take away. And we view these oftentimes as a thorn in the flesh. And we can cry out to Him to take it away, but please understand, oftentimes the thing He is allowed, He is allowed in our life to keep us humbled. And, and by the way, um, pride is the thing that got Satan kicked out of the kingdom. In, in case you don't recall, 
Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And how often we get caught up in our own game and our own words and think, I'm doing pretty good. And yet, thank God that He allows these things to keep us humble in our, in our life so that we aren't getting kicked out like Satan was kicked out. And so the Lord allows these things to bring about humility in our life, but also remember the teachings of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So there's this promise that comes along with being humble that the world doesn't see with its natural eyes, and yet Paul was able to see the humility that was brought about in his life through this thorn in his flesh. But notice with me what Paul does about it. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. What does Paul do about it? He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't complain to his neighbors about it. You never believe what God allowed in my life. No, instead, he brings it to the one who can actually change the situation. He brings it to the Father. And he says, Lord, this is the situation I've got. He prays. He petitions. He implores the Lord three times. The idea is with repetition, he brings it to the Lord. You see, and this is an important lesson for me to get from this because often I'll throw a prayer out there to the Lord. Like, Lord, would you please answer this? but then I never follow back up with it. And I think that oftentimes God doesn't answer things in my life because if I don't have enough faith to pray about it more than once, maybe He knows I don't have the ability or the humility to handle the very thing I'm asking for. <laughs> and so he, He's brought to the point where He cries out to the Lord. He implores the Lord. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 18 gives a teaching on this very thing. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he says uh, in a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And then he goes into this teaching. Verse 2, there was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God nor regard man. Nor uh, Now there was a widow in the city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me and from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual or coming to me she weary me. Verse 6, Then the Lord said, Hear what this unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes Will he really find faith on the earth? And so Jesus shares this parable about an unjust man who just because someone came complaining over and over and over again to him, he's like, I have had enough of that woman. I'm going to give her what she wants. And what he's encouraging us here is how much more gracious is the Father going to be than this unjust judge when we come to him over and over again? And many of you that have parents or have kids in here, if your parents in the room, um, how do your kids approach you? Do they come to you and just one time say, uh, may I please, and then they go away? Well, if they're anything like my kids, it goes a little something like this. They come to me and they say, uh, Dad, 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 
dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, until eventually they've exhausted me and they've wearied me. And I answer them and I say to them, yes, child, you're wearying me. What do you need? And so we have this understanding in our natural lives what it's like to have children like this. And yet, this is the way we're encouraged to approach our Heavenly Father, who is so much greater than any of us earthly dads or moms could possibly be. In fact, so great is our Heavenly Father that this is what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, I'll begin, says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus Christ the righteous broke through the veil that separated you and I from having access to the Father. And as a result of Him breaking through removing the veil that separated us, we now have access, you see. We can now come boldly to the throne of grace. We can crawl right up on our dad's lap and say, Dad, this is what I need. Please help in my time of need. And we know that we'll find mercy. We know that he will answer us. We have access through Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Now, he's cried out to the Lord these three times, and notice with me, he cries out until he gets an answer. Verse 9, And then he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so as Paul cries out these three times, he continues to cry until God answers him, until he hears. And I want to encourage you, if you're crying out to the Lord about something, continue to do that until you hear from him, but please know that sometimes He will answer you audibly. I've heard from the Lord a few times audibly in my life. But most of the time, the way I hear from Him is through His Word. You are not going to hear from God unless you spend time with Him in the Word. And so as we spend time with Him in the Word, He then provides an answer. And here's the thing. The answer, no doubt for Paul, wasn't the answer he wanted to hear. The answer he wanted to hear was, Be gone, tent stake, you are healed. And yet, what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so many times we pray out to God wanting Him to help us, but what God actually said to Paul is, I'm going to give myself as your help. I want Him to help me, but what He says is, I'm giving you me as the provision. I am the help. My grace is is sufficient for you. And the truth is, as I struggle through things, as I struggle through tribulations, that that's actually where I'm closest to Him. I'd love to tell you that I'm closest to Him when I'm having a good day, when I'm flying high, but the truth is, where I'm brought down to my knees is when I'm actually the closest to Him. But the other piece of this is, that's also when I'm strongest. Because He is the embodiment of strength. So when I am weak, he is strong. He finishes verse 9 by saying, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The thorns in my life are the things that bring me the closest to God. 
My life is a lot like uh, the Screaming Eagle. You ever rode the Screaming Eagle Six Flags? Fantastic ride, right? But it's like this. It's... And then it's... Put your hands down, right? Sometimes you get your picture taken halfway through. This is how we go. It's the ups and downs, the roller coaster. And yet Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so while I go through the ups and downs and the roller coasters of life, I think at times God has moved away from me when the reality is I moved away from Him. I went through a hard right turn and I went away from Him. He has never moved, never changed. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. He is already near. He has not moved. And so as I'm in a point of weakness, I draw close to Him. And when I draw close to Him, this is where power actually exists. This is where the power is at. Verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. And so Paul is at such a point, maturity-wise, that he's able to say, I take pleasure in my sufferings. Many of us aren't there yet. Me included. Where I can look at my sufferings and go, man, what a joy. But what a thing to attain to. To be able to realize that in this infirmity, in this suffering, in this place that I'm at, is where I actually realize the sufficiency of God. His incredible sufficiency makes up for my incredible insufficiency. And it's important to note that this word, this phrase, sufficient, we look at this and we go, well, God's going to give me just enough to get by. The Lord's barely given me enough to hang on. No, understand that His sufficiency is more than you will ever, ever, ever need. His sufficiency is enough. This is how Paul can finish up verse 10 by saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because the truth is, this life is not a playground. It is a battlefield. If anybody told you otherwise, they're a liar. It is a battlefield, and we are battling for our lives. But here's the beautiful part about it. It's not permanent. It's not permanent. It's temporary at best. And so if you're determined to make this place your permanent dwelling, if you're determined to make this place your heaven, you better go for it. But I got a warning for you. It's a hell of a heaven. (laughs) I mean, it is not the kind of heaven any one of us want. And at any minute, what we all know deep down inside is it can end like that. Step out on the woodlawn. There's people that think this is a drag strip. Good luck. Right? We're one diagnosis away. You're one phone call away from the whole thing being wrapped up. Is that any kind of heaven that we really want or desire? And Paul, knowing this, he could say then, from this spot, he could say, I take pleasure in my infirmities. This is how in Philippians chapter 1, 21, he can say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is the opportunity to share Jesus with others, to be Jesus with skin on. But to die, I'm going to the place where, where it's, it's so much better. Eye has not seen nor has ear heard the things that Jesus has in store for us. And so it's this joy of knowing He's got this planned for our lives. And where strength actually exists is in knowing that He's enough. Knowing that His sufficiency is enough for us. 
So much of what the world wants us to think is that this next thing is going to be enough. The next house is going to be enough. The next relationship, the next dollar I put in my bank account, it's going to be enough. But I got a newsflash for you. It's never enough. The only place where enoughness exists is in Him. Jesus is enough. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And in Him is where we find strength. In His will is where we find strength. If you want to see your prayers answered, instead of praying all the things you want, pray a little something like this. Not my will, but thy will be done. His kingdom come, His will be done. His will is always going to happen. And so as we mature, and we can begin to pray, Lord, whatever your will be for my life, guess what? Your prayers are going to be answered. His will is going to be done. And as we press in close to Him, and we realize this life is nothing but a blip a rad- on the radar, what you will find out is that on your worst day, as a believer in Jesus Christ, this is as close as you're ever going to get to hell. You realize that? The absolute worst things could get. That one more phone call, I can't take any more. This is as close to hell as I'm ever going to get. But on the flip side, for those that don't know Jesus, this place is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. And that's terrifying. Because what we know is it does not last. Enough is never enough. And this is why, as we close, Paul could say in the fourth chapter, in the 16th verse, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You for the things that we have not seen. For the inexpressible, the unimaginable things that You have for us for all of eternity. Lord, help us to focus on the heavenly things and not be so quick to get our eyes set down here on the earth. Help us, Lord, have a third heaven mentality and not be bogged down in the first heaven. When we are bogged down in the first heaven, it's amazing how hard things are, and yet we have been seated with You in heavenly places in the third heaven. And so help us to be mindful of that, Lord. Help us to realize that You are enough. You are sufficient. Whatever our needs are, You are the great I Am. Whatever we need, You are willing to provide. Lord, we thank You and we praise You for being enough. And a world that is trying to sell it and sling it to us in every way, thank You, Lord. You are the real answer. We praise You in Jesus' name.